0: What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. If you've been enjoying the show and you want an easy way to support it, you should leave a review for us on iTunes. If you're on a Mac, the easiest way to do that is just go to ndhackers.com review. There's been a lot said on this podcast about how if you want to build a business that makes enough money for you to quit your job and be your own boss, it's helpful to build an audience first. And recently that's gone a step further and to actually don't just build an audience, build an entire media company, a media brand. And I think that's obviously the most extreme version of building an audience. So instead of just talking to amateurs about this, I wanted to talk to a pro, someone who's actually done this and gotten paid to do it as their job. Alex Wilhelm is the senior editor at TechCrunch. He was also the editor-in-chief at Crunchbase News, which he started from scratch. And it's worth listening to Alex's experiences and advice because he knows what it's like to build an organization that drives millions of page views rather than more simpler content marketing efforts that only get a few hundred or a few thousand page views here and there. At the end of the episode, we tried to distill Alex's advice into a bullet list or a playbook of sorts that you can follow, but I really recommend listening to him elaborate on each of these principles during our conversation, just because I think that's a much better way to really understand what he's getting at. Enjoy the conversation. I know you've had at least two different stints where you were charged with building an entire media organization from scratch, one at Mattermark and one at CrunchBase News. Yeah. And that's a huge responsibility. And I know also they, they turned out very differently. So let's start with Mattermark. What was going through your head when they gave you that huge responsibility, and how did you approach it?
1: Going to Mattermark was interesting. It's, it's a little bit of a, a personal story more than a work story. I was at TechCrunch uh, before Mattermark, and I had a little bit of a drinking problem. And so I thought that I was miserable in my job. It turns out I was just miserable in life. So I quit TC. I went to Mattermark. And the idea was, you know, like you said, it was to build a little media company led by me, kind of focused on my kind of financial startup, the venture capital type stuff, uh, kind of my bread and butter that I've written about for a while. And uh, it went it went medium bad until I went to rehab, and then it went medium good until I quit. Uh, it's kind of the breakdown of 2016 for me. Mattermark didn't, in the end, have the resource base required to do what our ambitions wanted. And that's kind of a, that's not a diss in any way. Startups are always resource constrained. They're always making priorities. Uh, and so as Mattermark's business didn't quite proceed the way that uh, we had anticipated, my resource base kind of got diminished until the point when it's kind of like, OK, this is not going to work. But I sure learned a lot. I mean, as, as a personal year, huge uh, in terms of per- like just learning a lot of stuff, getting my my life back together, getting my my health back together and all that stuff. So it was it was super useful as a year. A tough one, though, not one that I would be super excited to do again. It's one of those formative years where you learn a lot about yourself. Yeah, you know, I really hate how most of life is falling down a staircase and learning how to fall down better the next time, but it seems to be a trend, at least in my life. What I'll say though is, if you've never worked at a startup, it's a really interesting environment and there's nothing quite like it given the sheer lack of rules and kind of like formality. And so for me, going from TC, which was owned by AOL effectively when I was there and then now Verizon. um, So inside the belly of a huge company, right? I mean, it's just huge. And going to Mattermark when you could see the whole company in one room was just insane to me. Like you could see everybody like, like, where's sales? Oh, right there. You know, where's legal? Oh, it's that person. You know, like it's this this strange place. So it was also a really good intro for me to kind of the world of in the guts startup. I got to go to a board meeting and I got to kind of do that in the weed stuff. And so I just tried to absorb as much as I could because it was a great, great experience. I, I think everyone should work for a startup for at least a year to see what they're like. You know, like it's just so different.
0: And if you're a solo founder you're literally wearing all the hats. Where's legal? It's you. Who's on content? It's you. Who's building the product? It's you. Yeah. What did you take from your, your time at TechCrunch going to Mattermark? I mean, TechCrunch, as you said, it was owned by AOL. They've been doing this for a long time. When you showed up at Mattermark, were you like, wow, you guys are doing content all wrong. Here are the things you need to fix.
1: Well, no. So they had some good stuff going for them. So one, the CEO of Mattermark, Danielle Morrill, is a, is a mastermind of generating attention around things. She can just engender attention to what she's working on. So she was always very good at writing up posts about Mattermark's business growth at the time, drawing a lot of attention to that. There was a newsletter that was doing... Really well, frankly, and there was a guy named Nick who was running that. Love Nick, fantastic human. Uh, and so there was already some kind of bones in place. But what they didn't have though was someone who was focused on it kind of full time, someone who was going to bring a different tone to it—a uh, more, uh, frankly, just a journalistic tone. My goal was to come there, go there, and build a reputable, if small, journalistic outlet. That was the—that uh, that was the idea. And you know, it's hard to do that if you don't have some grounding. In journalism, because a lot of business relationships are relatively transactional, whereas a lot of journalism isn't. And so it's hard to kind of jump over that, that fence if you're not accustomed to what it's like on the other side. But TC was, was interesting. I mean, I, I guess it narrowed that formula a little bit, because I could ramble for 20 minutes and bore the, bore the hair out of you. So what do you want me to focus on?
0: I mean, strategically, one of the things that I see is setting journalism apart and sort of news content as opposed to a lot of the content that most founders write is just the tremendous amount of attention and traffic that you can generate by telling people what's going on in the world. For example, you've got something like 75, 80,000 followers on Twitter and it's not just you. I look at other journalists and like they all seem to have 10, 20, 30,000 followers like way more than the average founder. Mm. And there's just something that seems to me about news that seems to be so good at captivating people and getting them to read and follow and building an audience. And so when you come into a place like Mattermark and they're saying, hey, we want a a reputable news outlet, how do you think about what you're going to do for them? Like, How are you going to actually get the numbers that they need? Why do you need so many resources? Do you need to hire a team? What is it that you're doing that gets you such a large audience?
1: So on the team front, I hired uh, some people that I knew on kind of a contract part-time basis because that was the amount of kind of budget that I had to play with. So it was maximizing how much I could get for the, my, my set budget at the time. So regarding the team front, uh, journalism is largely a team sport. You can do it solo, a bit like building a company, team sport, but often people will actually be a solo founder. A little bit less common, I think. But in journalism, you want to have someone who's good at copy editing, right? So you don't have ridiculous small errors in your public-facing you know, work that makes you lose credibility. We ended up with a small team of someone who could help copy edit and kind of run the site, someone who is better at data journalism, and then me, and that was kind of our trio, if you will. So it was a mixture of talents um, that we then tried to bring to the market. Then coming kind of to the the front part of your question about, you know, what, what was our plan? The, one of the most obvious things and well-known facts was still least regarded piece of advice when it comes to writing on the internet is regularity. And the reason why everyone knows that it's true is because it works. And the reason why no one does it is because it's hard and it's really, really hard to go out there and actually write every day, unless you've done it forever, like, you know, this, this is my job. So to me, it's kind of like what I do, but for, for most folks, it's difficult. And so um, the team element comes into play there a little bit, too, because you can have some people to fall back on. If you run out of ideas for a day, you have someone else there who might have an idea of their own. They can kind of bring it forward. Um, But with Matterwork, you know, it started off with just me. Like I rolled in as a journalist. There was no plural. It was just me. So then it was fun stuff like, you know, getting the blog set up and learning how to work with the developer team and that sort of stuff. For me, all this kind of new informative experiences. But the goal was to publish every day, and we eventually got there. And we got to cover some relatively big stuff, and we got better as time went along, and got better at you know just having you know regular chart colors for branding's sake, stuff like that. That is pretty basic. you have to learn, and it was a good year. But you know, I don't I don't think we accomplished there all that we wanted to, and so that's why I was glad to kind of get another crack at the Apple with Crunchbase News.
0: So let's talk about these aspects of journalism that make it work. The first thing you identified is regularity. I think the average founder who has a blog attached to their to their SaaS product or something isn't that regular every now and then they publish no. once every month or so, then twice in another month. What are your strategies for sourcing content and ideas and being a regularly consistent writer?
1: Well, one thing you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago was how many followers journalists sometimes have on Twitter. And I think that's not simply because they're journalists. I think it's because they're there a lot. And so you know, one thing that people like myself in the media do is we just, we read constantly and we stay up too late and uh, we read way too many tweets and articles and papers and uh, we watch too many you know interviews and we stay generally informed broadly. And then we niche down into our you know chosen vertical or, you know, focus area, if you will. And I think that founders often end up in their own little world, which is what you'd expect because they're building something, right? They're focused on this one thing they're doing. They're fixing, you know, they're fixing a problem with a SaaS product or they're trying to, develop this new brand or whatever. And so they get niched down. And so it's not a surprise to me that it's hard to write a lot, because if you're doing one thing, you can only write so many posts attached to that one thing. If you're in my seat, I cover, you know, the public markets to some degree, startups, venture capital trends, you know, Boston startups, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of brewing around. So I always have something to to grab onto. So I think topic diversity might be a, a pretty good way around the writer's block that a lot of people have, it seems, in the startup community when it comes to the stuff that you're talking about. Uh, again, I'm, I'm speaking from just my perspective to them, so this may be terrible advice. I freely admit, but that's that's my take on it. So, widening their topic remit, and then also getting friends to write for them, if possible. If they have friends that can write, having someone else contribute brings their audience, it brings their social following for a couple of days. It's a really brilliant way to kind of get the word out a bit more than you can by yourself. Though, of course, you know you can always beat your own drum as far as you want.
0: Yeah, it seems like if you broaden what you write about suddenly the world is your oyster you can write about a ton more different things but it also doesn't necessarily mean that anyone actually cares what you're writing about i've seen a lot yes. of dead blogs a lot of dead news organizations or people are writing stuff and they just don't get the subscribers they don't get the followers on twitter how do you think about choosing which content people actually want to read
1: well one thing that you have is is a never ending feedback loop of analytics because when you publish something and you tweet it out you get essentially instant feedback like you can see in the numbers if no one cares and I try to not let that guide me too much because I'm a bit, I don't know. I don't know how to phrase this without swearing a lot, but like screw them. I'll write what I want is my perspective a lot of the time. Uh, But also, you know, I do work for a publication that works for a for-profit company. So I have to pay some attention to, you know, performance. And so what I have noticed is you can just watch what people care about. Like one thing that's blown my mind lately has been the interest in no and low code solutions. I did a tweet about no code and like, I got like, a dozen emails about it because people were like, no code it's great. We want to talk to you about it. I'm like, whoa, whoa, chill, chill. What? And so I've had to go out and learn all this stuff. So if you can kind of follow your nose via the analytics, via social responses, you can get a pretty good taste for where the wind is going. And, and that will at least bring your stuff you're writing into a, a vein where people want to read it. And that gives you a shot at grabbing their attention and grabbing their follow bringing those eyes to your product or whatever it is that you're doing in the SaaS world. So that's, that's a bit, again, pretty general, but that works. That works day in, day out, week in, week out, every quarter, you know. It, it won't be the funnest writing you've ever done, but it will do what you want it to do. One of the toughest parts of
0: trying to start an online business is often the feedback loops are really slow. And so you do something mm-hmm. and you're not sure what people think about it or whether or not it's going to work until two or three months down the road, and then you get to adjust. Whereas if you're doing like, it would be the opposite, like playing a video game. Playing video games, you're getting an instant <laughs> yeah, yeah, feedback yeah. every like five seconds, right? It's like, oh, I died, I lost. I, you know, I didn't shoot the person or I didn't get the treasure. And writing is kind of more like a video game where if you're prolific and you're regular like you're talking about, if you're constantly tweeting or you're constantly publishing things, you just get maybe five or six points of feedback a day as, oh, no one cares about this topic or no one cares about this particular thing I'm writing about. Oh, this one really blew up. And so I think you can course correct yeah. and, and just sort of go in the right direction much faster than if you try to start off building a product or something really complex out of the gate.
1: I think that's right. And it is something that you get better and faster as time goes along. You'll build muscles and memory for this sort of reactive thinking. Also, you'll become a better writer. And I, and I know we're talking mostly about like regularity and like topics and that sort of thing, but also the, the quality of your writing does matter. Writing better is better. If you have a much better vocabulary, if you're better at turning a phrase, if you don't make awkward comma errors, people will come back more often. They will pay more attention. They will give you more respect. The cool part about writing on the internet when you're not good at it is no one's probably going to read it, right? No one's really paying attention yet. So like by the time people pay attention, you'll have got some practice in the bank. You will have done a couple hundred posts and you'll feel better about it. You'll have better ground underneath you from which to stand and talk. My training in journalism was at the Next Web, and back when it was like two part-time people in the UK and me in college. I was bad. I was not good. But I got to kind of write when the site was small and learn. And so that's, I think, uh, you know, an analogy to what a lot of people will go through in this process. But back to your point about long feedback loops in the building a business world, it can take a long time to get an audience going. When we launched Crunchbase News, we had a pretty modest audience. We had you know, my Twitter account. We had the Crunchbase Twitter account, which was pretty moribund by that point in time, having been kind of neglected over the years. And so we really had to start from scratch and it took ages. It was not an easy process. That was a grind. That was, the first year was writing for a much smaller audience than anticipated. And then by the time that I left, I was pretty proud of it. But it was it was a lot of just believing that it was gonna work out and keeping pushing forward. So even with my perspective, I, I understand the the length of time that it takes to kind of get this, this going. So I'm sympathetic to it, I guess. Can you share what the
0: results were of your time at Crunchbase News? Because, like you said, you went in and it basically didn't exist. At the end, I know hmm. you were doing really well in terms of traffic and audience. What, what were those numbers
1: like? You can tell that I'm that I'm no longer 24 because my brain's going like in like the reverse kitchen to find them. We were probably doing around a million page views a month. I think when I left, somewhere in there, um, that's within 15 percent of correct in either direction, somewhere in there. Uh, but what was really exciting about CoinSpace News, what made it such an edifying project to work on, well, well it's twofold. One, the people I got to work with on my team were amazing, and I, I love them. I'm still close with nearly all of them. But also, it was the regularity of our growth. We didn't have this moment at CoinSpace News when all of a sudden we grew by 50% in a month, but we grew by 15% almost every single month. And so there was this compounding effect to our efforts and this, this pushing forward. In every We set records, you know, like six out of seven months, we'd set a consecutive record. And so it was just this... It's never any push forward. That was, that was great. I, I miss that feeling of working with a small team towards a, a near-term goal. It's really, really fun. Uh, but yeah, somewhere in there, we also had a little podcast, and we had syndication deals with um, Yahoo Finance, and uh, we were on Smart News. And so we had other places where we derived traffic and so forth. But that number is just on the blog, if you will. So I think
0: what you did at Crunchbase is something that a lot of people would like to emulate. Right? If people could get millions of page views to their website every month. Holy shit! With their products, sell a lot more. Yeah. You showed up. They needed to build a news organization. What was the very first step that you took, and how are you? How are you sort of modeling this challenge in your mind based on what you would learn from Mattermark and what you would learn from TechCrunch?
1: My first step was to panic mostly. I realized instantly that I got in a much bigger job than I knew what to do with. Uh, <laughs> you know, and that's that's what they call growth, I guess. Um, the second step was to figure out where we going to live. There was no place on the Crunchbase website that was going to be a fit for what the news team was going to try to do. And the news team at that point was me, right? So it was news team, singular me. Uh, so I had to get a block up and going. So I, first thing I did was work with an agency, got a design put together and got a site on the internet, picked up a couple of crew from the old Mattermark days uh, that I kind of brought along with me. And, uh, we got up and we got up and running. What I wanted to do first was start seeding the ground with hosts to get information. Where do we stand? Um, what does our audience react to? What is a crunch-based reader? Who currently knows about us? I mean, to me, at that point, it was kind of a blank slate in the best possible sense. kind of a you know, blank canvas. You can go forth and kind of draw on it. And so we just started writing stuff. We, started to try, we tried to write stuff that people weren't writing. We tried to have a data-focused perspective on the news in a way that other publications weren't. And uh, we tried to let our personalities um, sit out there a little bit. So we didn't seem boring. We weren't trying to be writers with the AP of the startup world. We didn't want to do that. And TechCrunch already existed. So we went in a slightly different direction, a bit more data focused, a bit more chart heavy, focused around similar topics. But that was kind of our, our initial goal. And, you know, like I said, uptake was initially slow. I didn't share analytics with the team for a little bit because I didn't want them to get discouraged <laughs> at how... Some of the best stuff they were writing wasn't hitting yet, and we right. hadn't found that audience. And I didn't want to be like, that flopped. Do it again. But that's what I had to do. I, but only I knew. You know. So it was, and then later on, of course, analytics were entirely open to everybody, and everyone got to see everything. So that was a short, short phase.
0: What metric do you care about? Is it just overall page views to all of our content? Is it newsletter subscribers or social shares?
1: That's going to depend a lot. So I, I don't want to let my answer color other people's perspective too much because what Crunchbase wanted, the, corporate, the corporation, they kind of wanted new, unique people. Like can, can the news team bring in people to the broader world of Crunchbase that are new, that haven't been here before, which I think is, is pretty smart. That's a, it's, a, it's a pretty good metric and a good way to approach thinking about the value that a journalistic arm brings to the company. Internally, we cared a lot about that number as well. We also tracked kind of standard publishing metrics, page views, follower counts, newsletter subs, that sort of thing. We tuned for different metrics at different times, I want to say, keeping an eye on being read, but often focusing on other metrics than just page views. You don't want to let page views run your life, but also you can't have people not read your stuff. So page views can't matter, not at all, but they also can't matter entirely. And then of course, depending on what we're working on for a month or a quarter, depending on our OKRs, what we're doing, it would change. Like, you know, when we launched a podcast, we did a different set of metrics around that that we were focused on. And that of course bent our attention in that direction. Newsletter subs is a great one, newsletter open rates, CTRs, the, all, all that kind of stuff. But it just varies based on our, our near and medium term goals. So it's a crappy answer of saying it varies, but it, it really did. Sorry for that.
0: When I look at any media organization, for example, if I look at TechCrunch, you've got this yeah. homepage and there's just hundreds of stories, infinite scroll. You've got a newsletter <laughs> yeah. sort of sign up box and you've got like 10 different newsletters you can sign up for. And then you've got like your Twitter, you have all these different channels. I'm sure you get traffic from search as well. Is there one in the very early days that seems to dwarf all the rest? Like where are you getting your, your first traffic, your first readers from when you haven't really made a name for yourself?
1: So great question. So for us, it went first from social because we had existing social, we had personal accounts that had followers, right? So we could get people to show up and read the site in, in, in dozens of people, maybe 100 people. But it, that, that, that channel tops out pretty quickly and doesn't grow. From there, it was all about building uh, an initial SEO base and getting onto the search game. Because back to your question, what drives the majority? Google is an amazing traffic source. And I know that Google has diminished itself in recent years by adding more ads up top, trying to answer questions to those terrible little boxes and kind of defiling its UI with tons of crap and cruft and just yucky stuff. Ugh, Google search, remember when it was good? But still, to this day, Google is an enormous driver of traffic to, to media companies because we provide the grist, that people want. And so Google serves it up. People want to be informed. And I think that's why news content or, or news e stuff, journalistic stuff for lack of a better phrase does have constant market impact because people have a thirst to know what's going on and be informed. And that same sentiment applies to a lot of stuff that I read in the SaaS world about, you know, what SaaS metrics you should hit, you know, what should your LTV to CAC be in 2020? You know, like people will read that because they're desperate to know similar emotions, like different target point, if you get what I'm saying. But search is gigantic. And then from there, you get to do more exotic stuff. Like for us, our partnership with Smart News was a long time coming. We did like rebuild our RSS feed and work with them. There were lawyers involved. But then we got to publish over there. We got to publish on on Flipboard to some degree. And you begin to work in these other partnerships as you scale, get more attention, get more in-market respect. So for us, it was social search and then uh, stuff we kind of layered on top to build out our distro, grab new eyeballs and try to reach new audiences with writing that we were proud of. You know, by by that point, we had... um, we had an artist working with us. And we had lots of custom art that we were doing. We'd figured out our branding. We'd figured out our logo. And we'd really kind of reached a nice state of equilibrium that I was pretty proud of.
0: So let's go like one at a time. Earlier on, you're doing social. I assume that just means mm. you're tweeting out the articles that you write. One of the things that you know, I've found that people who have a ton of Twitter followers do is they often adapt their content to Twitter. So an educator who's teaching people how to code will create all sorts of cool graphics that, you know, are easily shareable or retweetable or they tell lots of jokes because people get, you know, retweets on jokes. Were you doing any of that or was it just as simple as publishing to your blog and then just tweeting it?
1: Yeah, we should have been more sophisticated. If you've watched um, the growth of Morning Brew uh, ever, they're that newsletter group that's been doing, yeah. I I love Just just to be clear, they look like they're having so much fun. They're all super nice. They're all super engaged. I don't know any of them personally, but like if, if TechCrunch fired me and I was like, oh crap, I would be like, hi, can I come write for your newsletter? Because I just think they're great. Uh, they have been so brilliant at using social media and various bits of, of, and I mean this in a completely non-mean way, attention-grabbing stuff to get more stuff for their brand. So if you're looking for a good example, go go look at that. We didn't have someone who was like super in charge of social in that way. And so our social was much more basic. But... Because I had at that point, you know, 50,000 Twitter followers, whatever it was, 40, I don't, I don't recall what it was back then. Um, we had some basis from which to stand on. And because journalists followed me, other journalists in the field, they would often retweet us. And so that would help kind of broaden our reach originally. So we were kind of bank, you know, leaning on what we already had. But everyone has some community. Everyone has some platform, be it LinkedIn or Facebook or even Instagram is surprisingly effective as well. And of course, today, TikTok. Though I'm not quite sure how that would fit into the SaaS content world. Maybe it does if I was more creative. But for us, it was, it was Twitter, LinkedIn, and trying to hit the obvious stuff, building pages, you know, getting our first 1,000 likes on Facebook, just you know, kind of really sort of basic shit. I mean, it's all hard. It's all slow. It does compound. And the first one's the hardest. and you know, But you, just, you can't not be present in those areas, I
0: don't think. I think trusting that it's going to compound is something that maybe you could do because it was your full-time role. But often founders don't have that trust. They're writing a lot of stuff week after week and they're like, the numbers aren't growing, you know, or people, you know, maybe I wrote that one article and it got two hundred retweets and it was amazing, but like my next article was a complete dud, right? It doesn't yeah. seem like there's any connection and it seems like this endless treadmill. How do you actually build up this audience into something that like is compounding over time and isn't just, you know, a bunch of hits and misses? Do you know uh
1: Jason Limkin? I do. Saster guy. Yeah, I yeah, it's actually good. I love Jason. Jason is fantastic. He uh, he answered questions on Cora forever. Like he's done like a bajillion Cora answers, and he's done a bajillion emails. And he he just he brute forced his way into the center of the SaaS world by being ubiquitous uh, and as helpful as possible. And I, I always think back to his example whenever I get a bit bummed. Like if I publish an article and it flops, and I'm like, ah, oh, I'm over. This is it. This Wednesday, it's the end of my career. And I'm like, what? Would Jason give up or would he write 65,000 more articles? And I'm like, all right, all right, <laughs> all right. And I bring up Jason because he is very much in, the, in this startup SaaS world, right? And he's, he's managed to build attention on the back of technical SaaS advice and, and company building stuff. When it comes to kind of keeping at it, I mean, he's, he's the North Star, I think, in, in, the, in the startup world for what happens when you just don't give up. So, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. He's done it and you can kind of steal from his example, I think. The other side of this is is it just does work. You know, if you write stuff that people care about over time, they will stick around and they will, you know, attach themselves to your brand, your media property, your Twitter account, whatever it is you're trying to get them to pay attention to because you provided them with something they didn't have. To the person in your example who is saying, oh, you know, I've written 50 things. One of them did. Well, maybe that's a good ratio. Maybe 2% going viral is pretty good. So that means that every 50 things you write, one will go viral. Cool, so write 400 things, go viral a bunch. You know, you'll then you'll go viral eight times. I think a mistake that people make is the expectation that any single piece of content will either mimic previous success or will uh, push the ball farther forward than it otherwise might. A lot of writing is incremental. A lot of news is incremental. And that's just the way it's going to be, I think, forever.
0: And one of the interesting things that I've seen that you did at Crunchbase News and that pretty much every large media organization does is you kind of diversify the types of things that you're writing. So it's not all educational stories. It's not all gossip. It's not all data-driven. You kind of mix it up. There's a lot of variety and novelty there. But how do you know what the best mix is? Like when you came into Crunchbase News, you know, there's an infinite number of types. You could do interviews with people. You could do uh, investigative journalism. How do you know what's going to resonate? And how do you decide, you know, what's worth working on and writing about and what you want to avoid?
1: Well, the good news is you get about, you know, I wrote, I think, I think it was a couple thousand pieces for Grungebase News, I think, total over the couple of years. No, it would, have been, it would have been at least a thousand. Yeah. Somewhere in the four figures anyways. Uh, so I, I, took, I had a bunch of at-bats to, to tinker with that and figure out what, what it was. And so you end up figuring out, like, if I write this, it'll probably do pretty well. I'll write some of those. I think this person on the site as an interview is going to be really useful to people who are trying to figure this thing out to understand this part of the world. And so you just sit around with yourself and a pad of paper or with your colleagues and several pads of paper and you talk about it. I mean, it's it's a pretty in every in every newsroom, there's some form of a regular get together to talk about ideas, trends, changes, interviews and something like that. And so you just have to kind of do that process. Now, of course, the world of journalism is going to be different than the world of like building content to support a SaaS brand. But there's going to be similarities. And this is one of them. And then back to our point about analytics, that will guide you a little bit. You know, if you only want to do things that are highly successful, you're going to struggle because it's hard to have repeat successes. But certainly you can look to what things tend to do better on average and lean in that direction if you want to juice shorter term numbers. But generally speaking, talk to interesting people, write interesting things, explain the world or explain how to do things and people will show up.
0: Can you give me an example of maybe a particular type of article or a trend that you figured out at Crunchbase, and maybe you had your meeting with the writers, you said, you know what, this works really well, we should do more of this. Yeah. I'm just curious what that process actually looks like, something specific.
1: Sure, sure, sure. So um, we call them explainery pieces, and uh, they're hard to do, but we did a couple of them. One thing that we always wanted to do more of was explaining arcane topics that you only find out when you're, when you're a founder in too deep to not learn them, like how to structure a cap table. Like people don't do that unless you have to do it, right? So then it's too late if you don't know what's going on. Or like how you, how does how does Ratchet work if you get a down round and you're getting a rescue VC deal? So one thing we did was we wrote a series of articles about a fictional company. Uh, they were doing, I can do this, a drone delivery of fried chicken, I think, or chicken wings or something. It was this fake company we made up. And then we, we walked them through over a series of stories. A couple of VC rounds, and we had a fictional cap table that we updated every post, and then we had them get recapped and then sold, and we walked everyone through kind of what that looks like inside the numbers. It Very time-consuming to do, but we discovered that these explanatory things had an insane shelf life. Uh, we, I wrote a piece taught, entitled, "How to Read an S-1," uh, the IPO filing document you can give to the government, and that's still doing numbers, I presume, over there. It was when I left. Did it take forever? Yes. Was it worth it? Of course. Uh, so we mixed in those with our news stuff, longer and shorter form. Uh, we thought about content kind of in, in short and long increments, I mean, kind of what we were working on. And then we tried to um, build intelligent channels. And we launched a weekend email newsletter for a few people, and we let that have its own personality. And, you know, you just kind of tinker, expand and, and, and so forth. But, you know, the explainery stuff was a trend we noticed early. We invested in, and it, it paid off pretty well. What stops you from just going... All in on that. You're like, hey, this trend works
0: well, reliably, you know, explanatory mm-hmm. articles, get more traffic and have longer, a longer shelf life than other articles. Why not just do 100% explanatory pieces?
1: Well, you'll run out of stuff to explain and you'll get sloppy and you won't have the best ideas. Like the how to write an S1 piece took a while to put together. It wasn't like I sat down on Tuesday and it was done by Wednesday morning. Like that piece took, it took a minute. We, we thought about the layout. We thought about how we were using images and art. And we did a good job, I think. But it took a lot of time. So that, that, that's not something you could do every, you know, every day. Back to our point about regularity, it would just be impossible unless you had a simply enormous team and a very wide purview of uh, things to explain. So we use that as a targeted weapon, as opposed to like a, like a carpet bombing exercise. We wanted to keep everyone on the site every day. We wanted to show up, and we always had stuff going up, but it wasn't always the longest stuff. You don't always have to do that. Uh, but you, it is a really good point there because people are always looking for a hack mm-hmm. to get around doing the work when it comes to writing. And I don't think there is one, unless you're like super famous. Like if you're super famous, anything you write, people will read because you're super famous. But I mean, most people aren't. I'm not, you're not. You and I are even 1% of the way to super famous. Thank God, because that's miserable life. But like, there isn't going to be probably a hack to building a long-term content property or media property for my world that is good based off of finding one cheap trick. I mean, that's what Uproxx and all all those companies did. And they were like, you know, soldier comes home, you won't believe what happens next. They found this one way to hack the Facebook algorithm and they blew up and then they immediately cratered when the algorithm changed. That's a good warning for that kind of thinking, I think.
0: Could you describe it as an accumulation of of cheap tricks? Like you've got your (laughs) explanatory article trick and then you've got like your super viral gossipy article trick and then maybe, you know, a media organization is just like five or 10 of those and that's all you need.
1: Well, I wouldn't, well, one, I wouldn't call them tricks. I would call them huge investments of, of, of hard work. Right. <laughs> so to strategies. me, trick implies that I'm doing something to, to confuse you. I know what you're saying, though. But we, don't, we never did the gossipy thing, really. We never did anything in those lines. We tried to not cover people much. We tried to cover companies and trends. And so we set maybe a harder challenge ahead of ourselves than we, than we had to. But like I, like I was trying to say earlier, I was making it up. I, 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 I hadn't really done this before. There's a lot of trial and error and a lot of error from me just being inexperienced. But I I tried to fix that by working as hard as I could. And that went okay. Um, But I think you do end up with six or seven techniques, uh, methods perhaps that, uh, that you use to approach the market. In my world right now, I write a morning column. So that's part of my output. I do two podcasts a week, Mondays and then Thursdays. That's part of my kind of structure. And I'm also talking to people all the time. Like I'm talking to you know, another VC this afternoon, and I'm going to have a bunch more notes about that. And I'm always trying to talk to people, listen, ask probing questions to learn more stuff so I have more stuff to, to write about. So that way, when news breaks, I have a lot in the back of my head that I can bring up like, oh, this connects to that. This is what this looks like. And people love that sort of connection. So it's, it's, it's techniques and practice, much like anything else. If it was tricks, I think everyone would do it, right? Then everyone would yeah. have this super successful media property, but they don't. Yeah, I mean, writing every
0: day consistently is a pretty hard, uh, quote-unquote, trick to pull off. There's no, there's no shortcut to doing that.
1: I mean, to be clear, though, Carlin, like, I, I, I don't want to do anything else. Like, this is the job that I want. So I, I don't want to sound overly pessimistic about it. If you enjoy writing, if you're very full of shit, like I am, uh, it's lovely. Uh, I can see though, for people who are a bit quieter and less uh, talkative, might be a bit more onerous. What if
0: you don't enjoy writing, but for whatever reason you're like, I want to start a media company. Maybe I'll hire some journalists. Like, how do you, how do you identify? People who can write for you or with you. And, and how do you even structure, you know, a small journalistic organization?
1: So what I just thought the way you said is really funny. Like, uh, what if you want to run a marathon, but you hate jogging? <laughs> well, <laughs> how do you hire uh, <laughs> a pinch marathoner to run in your place? Yeah, well, in that case, you just just write your name on their forehead and off they go. So having been the the journalist that has been brought in twice now to do this, I, I suppose I'm something of an expert, which is embarrassing. They don't actually really know how to answer your question. I would look for someone who has some managerial experience. I would look for someone who has a as much experience in the topic area that you care about, and then I would decide to trust them, because what you don't want to do if you if you're the CEO of a company and you're trying to launch a, a media brand is to micromanage it, because it needs to find its own voice a little bit. It needs to breathe. It's going to be generally aligned. You're not going to have auto parts e-commerce company and a and a publication about you know like how to make. I don't know, grits, so that would be strange, but you're gonna have things generally aligned, but then let them have space, let them breathe, let them, uh, let them walk free and then just have some really clear metrics. You want them to hit and then fire them if they fail. It's, it's not super hard. And given the number of people in the media world who have been laid off in the last, I don't know, five years, there's probably some pretty great people out there you can get for a reasonable amount of money, but you have to decide to trust them. And that's the, uh, that's the thing I think a lot of people struggle with. Because they want to run it like a marketing team. They want to sit there and say, well, you should have put that link there because we have 0.0% two more click-through rates. Like, no, no, no. It's, not, it's not marketing in the strict sense. Don't treat it that way, and, and then you'll be fine.
0: Yeah, what is the difference between content marketing, as founders like to say, and you know, a traditional you know, media journalistic organization? What separates it two?
1: Well, uh, a world of difference really. So, you know, anyone can put together a a publication on their site and have it run from the corporate voice. That's not hard to do. There's no rules to follow. I mean, as long as you don't get sued for, you know, libel or slander or whatever, you're fine. If you want to have people come and presume that they're they're being told stuff not strictly for the advantage of the company who's paying for the site, then you need to bring in the traditional rules of journalism. And that gets a little tricky when you work for a company. So one of my jobs at Crunchbase was to be the buffer zone between Crunchbase, the company, and Crunchbase News, the publication. And it was my job to make sure that the news team was unencumbered as best as I could from what the corporation wanted. It was to be like, here, we're gonna sit and do journalism and make lots of noise for the parent company, which will bring people to the site. It'll bring you know links like the New York Times covered something that we wrote on the front page of the business section. Like, that was cool. I have that, actually, it's right there, I saved it. But uh, there's more autonomy required. There is conflicts of interest. Uh, stuff like, you know, Crunchbase couldn't say, hey, news team, uh, we want to land a deal with so and so. So we want you to cover their stuff. I would have been like, absolutely not, because that's not how this works. So we didn't do transactional stuff like that. Uh, We tried to abide by every element of traditional journalistic ethics, which is too long to explain here. It's not really the point of the show as we could. And it was my job to hold that up. So we could proudly call ourselves journalists without any sort of wink or, um, or diminishment so it th- th- that's harder than probably what most companies want to do but I think even bringing an ex reporter in will bring some rigor to a newsroom that you otherwise might not get from someone who is more of a content strategist say yeah so you
0: hire a journalist you give them a lot of autonomy ideally they understand the rules of journalism and they've been doing this for a while and so they can sort yeah. of figure it out and I've noticed as you said like there's been so many layoffs And that's kind of how I I realized this trend of journalists have a ridiculous number of followers. Just going on Twitter, to seeing journalists that said, hey, you know, the outline or whoever just laid us all off. Mm. And I look and they always have these very witty tweets, very good writers. You could tell they live on Twitter all day and they'll have 50, 70, 100,000 followers. And it's actually surprisingly like inexpensive to hire a really good journalist. It's like shockingly cheap compared to what one might expect.
1: It gets more expensive in the business world. But yeah, it is still cheaper than you think. If you're used to paying like, you know, you and I both have friends that work at like big five tech companies and you and I both know what mid-level engineers make uh, for, for not working very hard. <laughs> uh, journalists will work a lot harder than that for a fraction of the money. Uh, so we're a bargain. So go get yourself a couple because people need to eat, you know? I I, I think I'm, I'm conflating two things though. So let me try to, to tease these apart. You can hire someone to come write on your corporate blog with a journalist in background and they'll do well, Like to be clear. But if you want to build a more serious, slightly distinct media outlet, distinct from your product that might be a center of gravity that attracts people and attention and inbound links and that sort of thing, I think you should set that up a bit more strictly and have uh, a bit more separation between the two. But uh, from the corporate perspective, I think either one has merit. It just depends on how seriously you want to go about this. If you just want to have a better blog, cool. That's not that hard. Hire some people, go hog wild. But the, the step above that is to build your own little media org, and I think that should uh, adhere to traditional journalistic rules. And I, I think that one of the best bits of Twitter that I've seen lately about this topic was a tweet that said, "You know, don't don't build a blog, like build a media brand around your SaaS company." I forget yeah. the exact quote, but I think it's a good point because people will trust the media brand because they've been reading it, and then that trust will, in some ways, transfer over to the, um, the corporation itself.
0: I think the way that you frame these things is very important. I I don't remember where I heard this, but someone said, you know, if you're uh, a musician making an an album, instead of thinking about making an album, think about a movie or a story and then think about making the soundtrack to that movie. And it'll give your work a lot more cohesion. And I think it's kind of similar with a media organization. Don't think about, oh, I'm going to have a blog and write articles. Think about actually building a media brand, a magazine or something that people get behind and then approach all of your articles you're writing from that lens. And I I guess it'll have more cohesion and you'll be able to do something that's much bigger and more ambitious than you thought of otherwise.
1: Oh, dude, for sure. I mean, um, the first round review back in the day was when uh, Camille ran it, was a tremendous example of what you're saying. It brought first round capital lots of attention. I heard more about the first round review than I heard about first round capital. Like Tomas Tungas over at uh, Redpoint has built a personal blog that uh, everyone reads in the world of Zass, right? And so, like, he now has brought an enormous halo effect to his employer, which is <laughs> weird. It normally, it goes the other way around. Uh, but it just goes to show you how, when done, when done well, when done correctly, this stuff is, uh, has an outsized impact that can change not just uh, personal life, but also business trajectory, which is much harder to do.
0: So, let's get into some of the reasons why a media brand can resonate so well. I have my own theories, and I feel like just like firing them off to you and you could tell me, you know, that's bullshit, Or Actually, that's actually very important and you should do this. Oh, this is gonna be so much
1: fun. Okay, you talk and I'll just shout bullshit occasionally.
0: (laughs) Okay. Writing about basically current events, to me, seems necessary to build a successful media organization. Often people can write these blogs with nothing but evergreen articles, nothing but educational stuff. But if it's not related to any sort of thing going on in the world, anything that's happening, I think people are significantly less likely to share it and to you know, tweet about it and to retweet it and to talk to their friends about it, which is pretty important, as you said, for the very first phase of growth, where it's going to be mostly on social. So yep. in your opinion, how important is it that
1: the content you write about focus on current events? It can't not do it ever, but it doesn't always have to. So you don't always have to have what we call a news hook, right? Uh, but often it's a great way to frame the piece. So if you want to make a point, a broader point, hang that on top of something that's happening that people are searching for or looking for that they care about now. And uh, they're much more likely to read the thing that you wrote and then get the thing you were trying to say that might have been Coco quote, quote, Evergreen. And you can always write the Evergreen piece anyway. It doesn't, doesn't preclude that. You're not you know, banned from it. But having a news hook is a great way to draw near-term attention. And anyone in the media game knows how to find a news hook for something. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a good point, and I think you nailed it. Yeah, define news hook. What does that mean exactly? Uh, what the hell happened that brought us to talking about this thing? And then we can talk about more related things, but it's what happened. Tesla reports earnings or, you know, Tesla's car crashes into semi in autopilot mode. Whatever the thing that just went bang, boom, crash or or soared, whatever that is, is the news hook. And then that lets you do a lot more stuff around that. But that brings people into the moment. It also grounds it in a, a place in time, which I think matters a lot.
0: And I think a correlator to my first point is not only should you write about things that are current events? Not only should you have a news hook, but certain things just are more remarkable to people than others. So writing about someone who everybody's familiar with, Elon Musk, for example, writing about a company that people are familiar with, Apple or Google, is almost always going to net you more traffic than writing about something obscure that people don't already have a personal connection with or personal opinions about. How much do you think about, uh, I guess, the familiarity of the subjects that you write about when when you're leading a media organization?
1: It's uh, uh, hmm. so you're not wrong at all that if you put Tesla in a headline, you will get many more clicks uh, on Twitter. You also get many more emails from really annoying Tesla shareholders. (laughs) Those are great. But I, I think you can't you can't only do that. Back to our back to our discussion about, you know, content diversity and having a mix of things covering hot button companies and people is a great way to bring in some folks to the publication but one thing you'll find is that they won't always be the highest quality readers they'll be there just to read a paragraph and then go rage about it on twitter so i think it's never a bad thing to have some stuff that touches that live wire but um, i wouldn't make it the only thing that you do or you end up chasing things that make you appear vapid because once you realize that elon musk drives traffic you'll cover more elon musk stuff so you'll cover more trivial Elon Musk stuff. You have to keep the, the, the standard of quality at the same level. You can't let that diminish just because it's it's it's, it's traffic generated. That said, that I do love to see the numbers when when I do cover Tesla. It's it's a lot of fun. I think you're otherwise right. I, I would just say like there's never going to be one thing you can do exclusively and have it go well. But I think that sort of stuff is a great thing in the mix. Like, have you ever had like um, a trail mix? you know, like, like peanuts and, and, you know, wherever you're hiking and you sometimes you grab a whole handful and it's all nuts and sadness. And then like your next <laughs> handful is like all MMs, You're like, yes. Um, sometimes you'll go a bit more in the newsy, famous people direction. Sometimes you'll go more into the niche stuff. Like sometimes I write stuff for a week that no one cares about, but me. Uh, and that's fine. Uh, I kind of know that going into it, but it does attract to what I write different people in smaller quantities who I stick with. Like I've met a lot of VCs by covering more niche SaaS topics who I now can kind of just call and and get their get their take on stuff than I would have if I had written higher level, more Mm. celebrity focused stuff, business celebrities, like you know, covering Mark Cuban or whatever. So it has a place, it's certainly not a a panacea and certainly it's a low calorie snack, and it should be treated like a Pop-Tart. It's not really a full meal.
0: How important is it to break news quickly? I've seen you know lots of media organizations writing about the same things that other people are already writing about, and it seems like there's this race to be the first and to not write about things that are old, to write about things that are new and that just happened yesterday or last hour. Is that something that factors into your decision making?
1: Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean news freshness matters. and so if you're if you're gonna cover a news item straight, Cortland buys Ferrari drives into Detroit right. That's a new story. That's a headline. If you're gonna report just that, you need to be quick. But if it's you know local Ferrari driver crashes car continuing pandemic of uh, reckless driving in and around, you know, town X, then you can write that a week later and you can frame it around a broader context with more data. So it depends on what you're trying to do. The story would be different if it was later on. I write a lot of what's called next day stuff. So I l- let a lot of folks write the the breaking piece and then I will jump on the analysis, talk to some people, get some other quotes and kind of build around that to provide some more context and analysis. And that's, that's one way that I approach this, um, but breaking news matters because people give a shit. And if you can write stuff that people care about, they're going to come show up and pay attention. And that's ultimately what you kind of need. If you're selling ads, ah, or some subscriptions, whatever, you, whatever your business is, media or not, people showing up does matter. And so you, you always have a bias towards what's happening
0: now. I like how you you mentioned that you'll do multiple pieces on a particular news hook or a particular event. So there might be the breaking news part of sure. it where you just say, this is what happened. We get this out as fast as possible. But you also want to do an analytical piece on it. And you also want to Figure out the broader themes and the broader story, and how this fits into other big stories and topics. Is there almost like a playbook you have for okay, this event happened, we need to cover it from all these different angles?
1: Um, uh, so every publication is very is very different, right? There's some publications that are very top down. Uh, you know, editor tells editor who tells sub editor who tells writer. The reason why I came back to TechCrunch is was not just the lovely people who I'm so lucky to, to get to work with again, because most of the staff is the same as it was when I was here before. Uh, but it's the autonomy. TechCrunch is is more of a very flat organization. And so we do a lot more kind of like intra-writer collaborations versus top-down playbooks. So it's not like we have like a three-point plan, like, ah, X happened. You'll do this, you'll do that, and you'll do that. It's much more organic, uh, which I find to be much more creative and kind of enjoyable. So we probably have playbooks that I just don't quite see in our patterns of coverage, but nothing as explicit as that. Another thing you've been
0: talking about that often I think people who write news talk about, but the people who have blogs and sort of corporate, you know, publications almost never talk about is just this word story. If you think about just like plain facts, like you can get facts from Twitter. You can go on Twitter and see people tweeting, oh, this happened, this happened, this happened. And I think one of the reasons why, you know, websites like Twitter haven't and never will kill journalism is because, well, there's no story around the facts. A journalist can actually take this fact and that fact and, and, and weave them together and say, "Well, here's actually what's going on. Here's the greater narrative. You know, tech is becoming a monopoly, or people are leaving San Francisco. How important is it that when you relate some event that occurred, that you incre- include some sort of story? And what are the details you think about for what makes a story good?
1: That's a, that's a really great set of questions. I'll try to be relatively brief. I, I think you you nailed what a story is in that if you just have a collection of facts, you have bullet points. Which are, which are an effective tool that I use occasionally when I'm writing if I need to. They're fantastic. But there's certainly one, one tool in a toolbox you can't only use a hammer to build a house other than you have a really weird-ass house. So building context... And walking people through why something matters is very important. And just to bring it home to what I do is I cover a lot of the late stage startup market and I cover the IPO market and a little bit of the public markets. And one of my jobs is to kind of explain to people what's going on between the two, to walk them across the divide as IPOs happen and that sort of thing, to explain what the hell is going on. For startups in the exit market for ipos in the private markets and kind of back and forth and so i do a lot of context building i try i try to do this who knows if it's good i try to build context provide a narrative flow to things and cover things thematically over a multi-month period to let people know what's going on and so if they read my stuff i hope they walk away reasonably informed about what's happening in the world. And if you just gave them a a dose of facts every day, like here's seven, they're gonna forget them. They're not gonna flow together. They won't be able to draw the connections that you're drawing because you're in the zone covering all this stuff. And so I think it's a very, very important part of um, building publication. And this is the the craft element of it uh, that I was talking earlier about getting better over time. As you get better at this, as you practice it, this becomes more easy or becomes easier and, uh, and much faster as well. And so you end up being able to write relatively quickly stuff that would take other people a lot longer um, to help kind of walk people through the the, the news hook, through the facts and into the context and why it matters to their life, their startup, whatever it is. And how
0: important is it to sort of own the story? Because the story is like completely subjective, right? Two people can look at the same facts and have a completely different story around it. TechCrunch's perspective on it might be, oh, you know, X, Y, Z is happening. You know, more people who have started companies are looking to, I don't know, bootstrap. Sure. And someone else might look at it and have a completely different conclusion. And I think one of the options you have as a media organization is you adopt someone else's story, right, you see, oh, this publication's writing it, and this is their angle on these facts. We're going to buy into that and just provide additional context. But also as a journalist, you can essentially create your own story. You can say, no, I'm going to completely ignore what other people are saying about this. and have my own narrative and my own theme for what's going on and talk about this for months. And uh, you often see this with, for example, Ben Thompson at tech Re. I think he does this a lot where he has his own unique analysis of what's going on. And it's a different take than really anyone else has. Is that something that factors in? Do you care about being unique with your story? Or is it more so just important that you're talking about stories that everyone wants to share?
1: It, it does matter. I don't think about it, though. I don't think about it and going, is this sufficiently unique? I just try to do the, the best job that I can, telling people what's going on, why it matters, and so forth. When it comes to your discussion of facts, I would quibble a little bit with. How you could theoretically get entirely different perspectives on things. What what Ben Thompson does as Strategery, and I read Strategery here and there. I used to be a subscriber. And I'm a fan, for lack of a better phrase. Guy's really smart, and he uses, he uses images very well to help kind of build on top of his text. I think it's quite well done. Um, he sits usually a level up from everyone else who are analyzing right. uh, more discrete news events. He's built uh, essentially kind of a one of a kind media company. So none of the stuff that he does applies to, to what the rest of the world does. He's got a huge subscriber base. He does the thing he wants to do. People love him. It's not really replicable. It certainly is, I can envy it, if you will. Um, so I, I think that when there's a set of facts, there's only so far you can go from them uh, without being entirely full of shit. So if you want to go Fox News, sure, you can just say whatever you want doesn't matter. Nothing is true. (laughs) Trump's always right. Uh, of course, you know, whatever the president said, we can find a way to twist our logic around and make it work. So scared old people will vote for him again, whatever. Uh, but if you live in the realm of reality, if you're attached to the planet, if your feet are actually on the ground, and your brain is switched on. I don't think you can get too far away from the facts and the facts are the grounding elements uh, of, of what drives coverage. Like people are covering Robin hood because it's growing so fast. Robinhood could have done some PR tricks. And they could have done some cool things to so get attention to themselves. But fundamentally, they're changing their entire market, so we have to write about them. They made themselves impossible to ignore, and so we will all cover Robinhood's growth, its monetization, the good stuff, the bad stuff. But they've become, you know, a place that you can't not go. And I think I think that's when the uniqueness factor comes in. What can you bring to the table on a story like that that's particularly good and interesting? Bloomberg today, uh, as we record this, I don't know if this is coming out. Um, wrote a really great recap of, of Robinhood, breaking some news on uh, some investigations they're under. That's a new fact that they've brought in. Uh, and Robinhood will try to spin that, but I mean, it's a fact. And so that's going to change the way coverage goes for them. So I don't know if i answered answering your question. I'm trying to, to hack at it in different directions. Does that help at all? Yeah. You know, as
0: someone who reads a lot of news, it's interesting to me that I don't know how the sausage is made, right? It's like I spend so much of my time looking at this stuff and seeing what's going on. and It's part of why I wanted to talk to you. It's like, well, what's going on behind the scenes? And there's like this almost interplay between what successful media organizations are covering mm. and the stories that are going on, and kind of like what they want the story to be, so to speak. So, for example, you could say that you can't not talk about Robin Hood, which is certainly seems to be true. It's like a huge topic, yeah. but it's also in part a huge topic because. Media organizations are choosing to talk about it, and if, for example, someone wanted to talk about my employer Stripe, well, there's lots going on at Stripe, and it's one of the fastest growing tech companies. But it's not as exciting; it's not as consumer focused, and so it doesn't get as many sort of articles written about it. But it seems to be like almost a self fulfilling prophecy, like because you choose not to write about it, and other people aren't talking about it, then it makes it easier to justify not writing about it. And so, I guess what I'm really curious about Mm -hmm. is like, you know, how do you see your obligation to create stories versus your obligation to report on what people are already talking about
1: by create stories. You mean go forth and find stuff that matters and isn't being talked about. Exactly. I think it's a, it's a, it's a big part of my job because the last thing you want to do is descend into generica. You don't want to become exactly similar to some other publication. You don't want to lose, uh, any sort of like angle on the world. You want to bring something that other people aren't. Otherwise, why are you doing it we, with the internet? Distribution is free. Right, so if we're gonna write the exact same story about X or Y, who really cares? It's some traffic, but not really. Um, traffic is, as you and I both know, in the ad game, is not super valuable. When it comes to Stripe, though, I mean, Stripe is pretty well covered for an enterprise company. For a company that's in the background, they do a pretty good job of bringing attention to, I guess, yourselves. Um, I mean, I was at a Cloud One Hundred thing when Patrick was just up there talking to you know a room full of you know, a couple hundred VCs and like eight journalists. I mean, you know, the company doesn't, doesn't lack for attention uh, and so forth. Right. I think it's the companies that are small, that are like, you know, a couple people building a SaaS product, they're like, you know, a million or whatever, and they're desperate for attention. That's tough. It's really tough because there aren't so many journalists covering the startup world that the, the amount of attention we have to give out can drip all the way down that far. Uh, and that's just a struggle of, of the news, businesses, economics going to hell and the industry falling apart. Like back in the day, there were like a multiple of the number of journalists in the world that we have now, at least in the U.S. And so there was more folks listening, more folks to talk to you, more folks to go out there and talk to that person, the small business and get their story. Now, you know, I get yanked by breaking big news off of smaller stuff um, just because that's a fact of the way that the world currently works. It's not good or bad. It just is. Well, it is bad, but it also is. So I'm sympathetic to, to the person who gets ignored. But the best way to get attention is just to kick ass. You know, if you're incredibly interesting, and you're very successful, you will be talked about. And so the tonic, the antidote to being a startup that's ignored is just to crush it. And people will pay attention to you. Um, but that's tough. And most startups won't do that. So it's it's kind of a shitty bit of advice, frankly.
0: I mean, this is exactly why I started Andy Hackers. At first, it was literally just a blog or a media company. And the whole idea was... There exists an entire subset of founders building companies that are interesting to lots of people, yeah. but maybe not broadly interesting enough to get mainstream media coverage. Like TechCrunch is not going to write about someone who just got to $10,000 in monthly recurring revenue. But I wish there we are could. still tens of thousands of people who want to read that.
1: I, I wish we could. I mean, I-, I try to always pick up a couple of seed rounds here and there uh, to highlight people. Like, I mean, I'm currently corresponding with a startup from Vicey's demo day last week that I think is awesome. And so I, I try to have, you know, I-, I know some local entrepreneurs in my hometown here, Providence, the uh, my adopted hometown and I'm trying to get to know people that are building smaller stuff. But I mean, it's an enormous amount of legwork to write something that people don't really want to read at the same scale as they want to read other stuff. And so you do get kind of torn between the, the realities of the industry you live in and also how much space you can generate for yourself to write the stuff that you really care about. And, um, I'm lucky in that I work for a publication that gives me a lot of, a lot of freedom. And I have a bit of a personal readership, a couple of people read my stuff just because I wrote it. And so between those two things, I can kind of go out of bounds a little bit more often than I I might at a different place, which is why I'm going to stay put at TC. But I'm sympathetic to what you're saying. I don't have a solution for other than fixed journalism's economics, which will help. But I mean, if we can pull that off, then I would be super rich. You mentioned Ben Thompson having
0: a huge personal following, people like him as a person and his perspective on things. You have a huge Twitter following. You have people who like your perspective on things. Have you considered you know, just being a solo journalist and whether or not you have, like, what do you think differentiates that sort of role from writing for a bigger publication?
1: Yeah, everyone's had that thought. In the same way that every engineer working in a team for an idiot has been like, I can just go build this myself. Why don't I just go, I can just get my friends, we can just launch our own company, we can build our own product. Like the indie hacker thing, right? You're asking, why am I not going to do that in journalism? Uh, The short answer is I'm trying to have kids. And so paternity leave sounds great. And I've got good health insurance and uh my wife is in residency so i make most of the money so you know i'm i'm sufficiently old that my life has become boring i guess is what i'm saying i think that's next for me if things go well uh not soon i'm not gonna leave TCI. i just got back i'm super happy i'm getting to do a lot of stuff i'm excited about i love the people i work with but yeah, you know, in five years, probably. Yeah, if, if if Substack is still popping in five years, I'm in. You know, might be a terrible financial choice, but uh, it sounds like a really fun way to approach the world. My internet friend uh, Paulina from uh, Fortune, Fortune last, she now runs her own little media company. Alex from BuzzFeed's doing this. Uh, some people that I know are have already jumped in the pool. They're very brave, and I'm proud of them. And I hope they do really well. I subscribe to some of their stuff, so you know, if it goes well for them, maybe I can talk myself into doing it. But Working for a big company is somewhat easy. You know, you get a raise every year. You know, you get 401k matching. There's there's things that you get that are
0: nice. Yeah, I think the risk adjusted sort of expectation for what you can earn as an indie hacker is not always as glamorous as it might seem when we talk about the success stories and the standouts. Uh, A lot of people fail. Uh, There's a lot of risk that you have to take. And it's something that I think you should do not just because you think it's the best financial decision, because it's probably not, no, no. but because you have some other thing to write. Like you can't, for example, if you can't work for an employer, there's just something inside of you that just hates doing it, which is you know, kind of the case with me and a lot of other people, then it gives you that extra move. But if you're killing it at your employer and you love the sort of benefits that you get, I don't think it makes sense to financially just jump in the pool as an indie
1: hacker. I mean, unless you just can't take it anymore, right? Exactly. And I respect that. I, I, this is why I like entrepreneurs. This is why I like, I like covering startups. Um, you get to talk to people who have decided to do something really dumb and like, you know, not not like ignorant, but like stupid. Like, oh, you were working at Google. You were like mid-level. You're probably pulling down 350 a year and now you're going to have to go start a company. Great. Good job. Now you won't invest all that stock you had waiting for you. But I, but I love that. I love that the people are going to go out there and be like, this probably won't work, but I'm going to roll the dice. I'm going to work super hard. I'm going to build something I think the world needs. And then you get to talk to them. And then they get to tell you how stoked they are about fixing whatever it is. I mean, like, I've had people get so hyped about, like, healthcare APIs. And I'm like, oh, Lord, how do I care about that? And then they tell me why they're working on it. I'm like, oh, shit, all right, cool. And I'm totally convinced by their enthusiasm and passion and just drive to make the world a better place and hopefully a pile at the same time for themselves. But, like, yeah, I I, I like talking to the, uh, the crazy people, which is why I cover startups. Uh, it's a never-ending font of fun folks and fun stories. It's good times. Mm-hmm.
0: With so many people writing content online, it's, I think one could argue that it's almost a commodity. There's so much to read. There's obviously way more to read than any person could read in a day. If you don't like one particular article, you know, why pay for it? Why even read it? You could just go read something else yeah. and they'll find something to fill your time. How do you, as a new media organization, Get around that. How do you compete with the fact that no matter what topic you pick, no matter what angle you cover, someone else is probably already doing it? There's already a tech crunch, there's already an indie hackers.
1: Yeah, but there's already a tech crunch in Adventure Beat and a bunch of other publications. So there's plenty of room for crunch-based news to show up. You know? A bit like how you could how you scratch your own itch by building a company to go out and fix things that, that pissed you off. Figure out what, what you're not reading that you want to. And that'll 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 be a good sniff in the direction of, of where you should go. If we crunch based news have this data focused approach we spend a lot of time doing charts and looking up data and running numbers and trying to provide a bit more rigor behind the anecdote like one thing that i don't like reading is like a trend piece like you know people in new york city are wearing this type of thing and i'm like it's fine to seven people on the author's friend like i don't care but if you bring data to me you said look it's up 30 percent over the last two quarters of 100 from the last year i sit up and so we took that approach and that was our our angle but if really, if you sit down and you say to yourself, there's nothing I can bring to the market that's different, I have no unique thoughts, and I'm not interested at all, then don't write. But I don't think that's true about anybody listening to this show. There is something that's missing. They do have a perspective that's unique, and they probably have something to say. It's hard to learn how to say it, but I think I think there's enough room for everybody online because the internet's just so big. You know, you won't be a hit, maybe, but you'll have a good study routine of traffic, and it'll help you. Yeah, I just I, I refuse to be pessimistic about this one.
0: The last thing that I think we haven't really covered that seems pretty important is just the how do you structure and actually write a story mm. on the internet? Obviously, on the internet, people are pressed for time. If they're checking their email, they're on Twitter, they're usually in some sort of distracted state. Yes. Uh, they're probably not going to read something that's boring. They're not going to read something that's overly complex. And in addition, like as a journalist, you have this extra responsibility on you to basically not get the facts wrong. And you have all these other yeah. concerns we talked about where you might want to be writing something that like does well on Google or does well on uh, Twitter. How do you approach actually structuring a story and what are some mistakes you think a novice might make that you wouldn't
1: i think a mistake a novice might make would be to reach too quickly for a pattern they can just use to hammer out stuff so i wouldn't i wouldn't ignore seo i wouldn't ignore social titles i wouldn't ignore any of the things that are obvious but i wouldn't over index to them i would spend a bit more time writing some short to medium form things being bad having my friends read them and telling me what they liked and didn't like and then hammering on my own style and if you want to improve quickly the best thing to do is to go read books by great folks. Like whenever I feel my style going to shit, I go read some more books and I get better because you you absorb through intellectual osmosis this, this stuff from other people who are better than you. I'm not a particularly great writer and I have a kind of an annoying style and uh, I've kind of given up trying to fix it. This is just kind of who I am. But you learn structure through, through practice good inputs and and feedback. And if you're going to be alone, you won't have an editor who can like, you can sit down with occasionally and chat things through. So you're going to have to find other folks to give you advice, but um, no, no good piece of writing you've ever read was done entirely by one person. It's always been a team effort. So if you have to go assemble your team, do it, but get some other inputs. It can be your mom. If she's got the time, you know, like it doesn't have to be someone fancy or famous or good. Just someone who reads can provide some good feedback where they got lost where where they need some more context like this happens to me people will be like we need another sentence here you just you jumped and i'm like you didn't follow my logic they're like no i'm not in your head add a sentence i'm like all right cool enough so th- that's about it and then uh, you know you can also imitate respectfully people that you that you really like like you know you're not going to start writing ben thompson length essays to start but you can go find some people you like it's say bloomberg who write in a particular style and you can go learn from that and then finally there are just resources to lean on. So, read the Bloomberg Way, which is literally Bloomberg's book on how to do Bloomberg style reporting. Drunken um, White's fantastic for style. And then, you know, there's a zillion great books out there that you can pick up, but like there's, there's assets and tools and so forth that you can pick up and writing groups if you want to go super deep. If, people listening to this probably don't, but that will
0: get you started. So, I'm trying to uh, distill everything we've talked about into like, I don't know, some sort of very loose playbook for listeners who are trying to to do what you mentioned earlier, not just build a blog, but build an actual media company. Mm. And I think some of the best points that you brought up that, that people can really take away are number one, consistency. If you're not writing on a regular basis, a lot of content, like people just aren't going to read, you're not going to get a lot of shots on goal. And you're not going to be able to build a lot of traffic. Number two, like I like this idea of the firewall. If you're trying to build an actual media organization, it can't just be this sort of corporate, very clearly, you know, trying to push some product. It needs to be something you think of differently than your actual product business. And if you're one person, that might be kind of hard, but you need to understand that like, these should be two different things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, it's hard to have two personalities, but keep going.
0: Yeah, number three, this is a consistent theme you keep bringing up. You need to read a lot and you need to read a variety. That might be very specific things like, you know, the Bloomberg way, they're actually book, their actual book, but a lot of it can just be news, Twitter, what's going on in the world. And I think that feeds into some of the other tips you've given, which are, you know, write about things that are recent write about things that matter to a lot of people and ideally write about things that you yourself wish you were reading because that's a good way to sort of, you know, uncover what's not being written about and have your own unique angle. Are there any major things that we're missing here? Like what else do I need to basically build a media organization or is that it? Could I go off and do it with only those tips?
1: I think the only, so I think that's a, that's a good start and a really good summary if I can just say so. I I would add, I would add, um, just, grit the same grit that i think that fires up an entrepreneur is going to be necessary for this sort of work because while there's plenty of room on the internet there's also plenty of competition and you know you will have to fight for attention and so forth so if you just decide not to give up you're going to be fine it's hard to do that um as we all know but i think i think that does apply to the situation a lot and then i would add one more thing have some fun writing is good being part of the conversations is enjoyable it's it's one of the funnest things that i've ever gotten to do as a person and so, you know, you should find some joy in it uh, as often as you can, hopefully every time, every day, if not once a week on the harder weeks. Um, but there should be some element of joy because you're you're bringing information to people who want it and you're helping them better understand the world they live in. And you're educating yourself at the same time. And that's a pretty cool job or a pretty cool part of a job. If you're a solo founder out there trying to expand the stuff yourself. So, you know, try to smile and then don't give up.
0: All right. Well, I'm doing uh, the having fun part. It's fun talking to you, Alex, and getting to, <laughs> to watch you almost choke on your drink when I say
1: that. It's uh, it's not lukewarm, really lukewarm coffee. How long have we been talking, by the way? I have no idea how long this has been. I think it's been like an hour and 15 oh minutes. Oh, my God. I've also, I should go check Slack. Finish. Uh, what we're talking about. Yeah, Panic. You
0: should, uh, you've got stuff to do. Yeah, you've got, you've got articles to write. Uh, Where can listeners go to find out more about what you're up to and maybe get in contact with you if you're uh, willing to answer some questions about journalism?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, twitter.com slash Alex is my main social presence. My email is alex.wilhelm at techrunch.com. I'm usually between one and seven days late on email, so apologies for that. Life is busy. Uh, I write for techrunch.com. You can find myself around there. I'm also on a podcast called Equity where we cover kind of the VC startup worlds, uh, which is a blast and one of my longest (laughs) projects that I've been part of, one of the funnest. As, as you know, Carlin, podcasting is just a blast. Um, it's, it's never never a boring time. Uh, but really, I'm around to help. If I can be of use, shoot me an email. I'll try to get back to you ASAP. Time is limited, but I will, I will try to answer whatever questions you have.
0: All right. Thanks so much, Alex. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and you want an easy way to support the podcast, you should leave a review for us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Probably the fastest way to get there, if you're on a Mac, is to visit indiehackerscom reviews. I really appreciate your support and I read pretty much all the reviews you leave over there. Thank you so much for listening and as always, I will see you next time.